A 737 crashes just miles from the threshold of the runway at Chicago Midway. Find out what caused the first fatal crash of the Boeing 737. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. As usual. Hope everyone's feeling okay. Happy quarantine. Yay. <laughs> no, just kidding. That's just all kidding. we're going to... We're tired of talking about it, so we're not going to talk about it anymore, but we just wanted to make sure everyone knew we are in the know. <laughs> we are in the United States. And it this is, is happening here. We are recording this... What is today? The 22nd. Oh, <laughs> yeah, this is March 22nd. You'll be hearing this two weeks later. So... Hopefully, we're, everything's calmed the heck down by then. Yeah, right now we're in the middle of all the everything shutting down. And it's real boring, let me tell you. It's real yeah, boring when you can't I'm, go out and do anything. Right. So I'm still working at the moment. Me too. I'm technically on spring break this week, but, and I'm real bored. So this is your second <laughs> week of your technical <laughs> spring break. <laughs> so bored. I'm like, I need to figure out something to do this week that's like productive, because I... For me, it takes about three days, and then I'm like, I'm completely bored. I need something to do. Fair. So, hopefully, this helps, so. So, speaking of things to do. Yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs> thanks for list everyone who's listening through maybe not having to go to work and stuff. We get it. It's a rough time right now, so. It hopefully, is. we can keep you company. And yeah. entertained. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, let's get started, then, with that quick note out of the way. Um, what are we covering today? So, today we are covering United Airlines Flight 553. Thank you to Nicholas Relstab for... Who apparently lives by the Midway Airport, which this has to do with. So, we are covering both of the major incidents that happened at Midway, and this is one of those. Yep. So this is a, a recommendation again, and I really appreciate that we're getting so many recommendations. We were actually talking about it, and it would be really cool one day if we could just do like our entire podcast is recommendation-based, like audience-driven, basically, because we're already almost to that point. So we appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much. We love recommendations. Keep them coming. Send them to us. It means we don't have to pick stuff. Yeah. It also means that we cover stuff we may have not seen before. But we are suffering from a lack of variety a little bit in what happens, but that's okay. We'll get into it. All, All right. right. Go for it. So this is, like we said, UA 553, United Airlines 553. This happened on December 8th of 1972. It was a 737-200 with the tail number November 9031 uniform. It was a scheduled flight from the Washington National Airport, now known as Reagan, to Omaha with a stopover in Chicago at Chicago Midway. The captain for this flight was Wendell Lewis Whitehouse. He was 44 years old. He had about 18,000 hours total, of which 2,435 hours were on the 737. That's an interesting last name. Yes, Whitehouse. <laughs> Whitehouse. <laughs> yep, that is just full on his name. I mean, he didn't get to pick it, so... Nope. I just thought it was interesting. I don't think I've ever had some... I don't think I've ever met someone with the last name that has a color and an object in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. Let alone one very in particular one. Very in particular. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Sorry. Continue. Anyways. The first officer was Walter Koble. He was 43 years old. He had 10,638 hours total, of which 1,676 hours were on the 737. 
The flight departed Washington National Airport at 12.50 p.m. Central Time on an IFR route to Midway. The aircraft was cruising at 28,000 feet per air traffic control's instructions. As it entered the Chicago Air Route Traffic Control Center area, they were cleared to descend to 4,000 feet, and they were given radar vectors to intercept the runway 31 left localizer course. What that really means is they were given they were given instructions on how to get to basically the turn to turn straight into the runway. However, there's a localizer is a point on that on that approach. Did did it tell you? Are they doing a? They are doing visual? a. They are doing a non-precision approach. Uh, what does that mean? Visual. So it's essentially, yeah, essentially, it's a it's a visual approach. It's There's a visual, no ILS. It's a visual approach using reference points along the way, without using. Yeah, it's not an instrument driven approach. Okay, that's all I needed. Thanks. It is similar to the Southern Airways Flight 932 that we covered. Yeah, exactly. The one of the rudder hardovers. No, no, that's the the uh, football team. Oh, okay. Sorry, we've done a lot of stuff. My brain, I know. <laughs> my brain can't remember everything I know, we covered I and when we covered it. But oh, okay, no, all right, I got you. All right. All right. So ATC was handling other traffic at the same time as that call, and they were handling one small aircraft that had executed a missed approach at the time and was given instructions to loop back to the outer marker for a second attempt at the approach. At 2.24 p.m. and 45 seconds, the smaller plane, which was an aero commander, was given instructions to switch to the midway tower frequency and to keep their speed up as long as possible to keep spacing on the trailing 737, our UA-553. The spacing at the time was 3.5 miles. At 2.25 p.m. and 35 seconds, UA-553 was approximately 2 miles outside of the outer marker on the localizer course, which the outer marker... So you have an outer, a middle, and an inner marker. Those are the reference points I was talking about. Those are points along your non-precision approach where you should be at a certain altitude and lateral point in order to be basically on your glide slope for landing. So they were two miles from getting to the outer marker, at which time they contacted the tower controller and advised them that they were out of 3,000 feet for 2,000 feet. The controller acknowledged this and advised them that they were number two on the approach behind the aero commander. At 2.26 p.m. and 41 seconds, the aero commander reported the runway in sight and was cleared to land. The air traffic controller had considered changing the aero commander's clearance to land onto runway 31 right instead of runway 31 left. They're parallel, one beside the other. But reconsidered that when he noticed the proximity of the airplane to its touchdown point. In other words, he realized the airplane was almost a touchdown. So he reconsidered that and let them continue their landing on 31 left. However, the spacing was getting too close with the 737. So before we go on, what yep. kind of plane was that on? So an Aero Commander is actually just a really, really small private, privately owned airplane. Okay. It has two piston-driven engines on Oh, it. okay. I just was having a hard time visualizing, so I wanted to ask and make sure. Yeah, it's just a small airplane, privately owned. A small private-owned airplane. Yep. Like the ones you see around Centennial all the time. Yep. Yep. Okay. Instead, because of the spacing issue, instead the controller opted to issue a missed approach to UA-553 at 2.27 p.m. and 4 seconds. Were they scared that they were going to run into the plane? Yeah, the spacing was a little close with the Aero Commander. I mean, they were at this point, they were probably less than 3 miles separated. So by the time that, that Aero Commander finally slows down and is able to clear the runway, the 737 might be over the threshold. Why didn't they just change the runway for the 737 then? 
because they're right next to each other. He was already set up on a on a on an approach specific approach. A specific approach, and they're not allowed to use three one right. Oh, is the plane too big? Yep, three one oh. right is shorter and is not allowed for jet traffic at the oh, time. Oh, okay, all right. Only three one left. He did this saying UA five fifty three execute a missed approach. Make left turn to a heading of one eight zero. Climb to two thousand. So in other words, turn left and climb up to two thousand feet. The flight crew acknowledged this, saying, okay, left turn to 180, left turn, okay. That's what they said. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's not good. They had a lot of other problems going on at this time. Yep. I'll get into it. Yep. Okay, I just... <laughs> Whenever I hear stuff like that, when it's not repeated back exactly how it's supposed to, I'm like, this is where it goes downhill. <laughs> yep. It went downhill a while ago, Yeah. turns out. Oh, okay. That's great. All right. <laughs> Continue. So at 2.27 p.m. and 36 seconds, the traffic controller told the flight to contact the departure controller, which the flight crew never acknowledged, and the crew was never heard from again. The air traffic controller noticed after that that the target associated with the airplane on his radar appeared to be drifting about a quarter mile off of the localizer center line to the right. So in other words, it was making a slightly right turn off of off of the, the approach he was on. About a quarter mile off. In- instead of turning left? Uh-huh. Uh-oh. <laughs> the captain had called for the final descent checklist about four seconds after the sound of the outer marker had stopped, but a short time before the call for the must approach by air traffic control. This was a very late call for the checklist. This should be done well before the final approach. They were in the clouds at the time, about 700 feet above their minimum crossing altitude, which is similar or is basically the MDA, that we've been talking about so frequently lately. False. So, in this case, it is, because that is the point where they are to descend no lower. Yes, but the MDA is a different value. The MDA is a different value, but when they're crossing the outer marker, they're supposed to be at the minimum. Yep. So they were 700 feet too high. Right, so the minimum crossing altitude for this non-precision approach at the outer marker, they were 700 feet too high. The, the minimum crossing altitude was 1,500 feet, and they were at 2,200 feet. Why were they so high? Right. <laughs> so, the captain moved the spoiler to the flight detent, extending them slightly to assist in descending the airplane back to the proper approach altitude. So, the spoiler are little uh, flaps, literally, that pop up on the top of the wing that are intended to increase drag, which allows... help the plane slow down. They help the airplane slow down and to descend a little bit faster. You see them if you ever look outside when you're on a plane mm-hmm. and you're landing, you see them pop up. Yep. Especially when you hit the ground, they go like full all the way up. Yep. Oh yeah, exactly. But in this case, they weren't full all the way up. They were just slightly up. They were in the flight detent, so they were up just a little bit to help him increase his rate of descent. It was as high as they could go in flight. Basically, yep. The temperatures around them were below freezing, but the anti-ice was selected. They were in the clouds at the time. Immediately after that, the first officer stated, uh, 1,000 feet, and immediately after that, the stick shaker activated. Uh-oh. The airplane then had a sudden heavy increase in engine power, and the nose was angled high, and some people on board the airplane had stated that uh, the airplane appeared to surge or shudder at that time, heavily. The airplane impacted the ground a short moment later at about 2.48 p.m. They stalled? The stick shaker would be, yes, a very big indicator of that a stall. Because <laughs> that is literally what so happens when the airplane the stalls. they put the nose up? 
there I'll get into yep, it. Yep, we'll get into that in just a moment. Uh, so and the another indicator of that is the people that said they felt a shudder in the airplane at the time, because what happens when an airplane stalls is you get buffeting. Buffeting is a phenomenon that that happens when the airplane is no longer traveling with airspeed over the wings. It starts to literally just shimmy, shimmy and shake. It's it gets pretty violent in some airplanes actually. So people were saying they noticed the shutter before impact. Oh, good. Yep. So wreckage. The airplane was completely destroyed on impact. Which Obviously. Was about one and a half miles short of the runway. Which, if you know anything about Midway, and it's in the middle of the city. It is very in the middle of the city. It is one of the closest proximity to residential areas of any airport in the United States. And I don't say that lightly because literally it's like four square blocks of an airport and around it is just entirely houses all the way up to the edge of the airport. I have family who live by a Chicago airport. They didn't tell me which one. So it's either Midway or O'Hare. But they're like, yeah, we live a couple minutes away from the airport. And I was like, great. I didn't ask them which one. <laughs> Slight tangent. We found out that the street that is the drop-off street is called Cicero Avenue. That's kind of hilarious. Which mm-hmm. then led me to look up the Hotel Cicero, since Miranda recently played in her alma mater's rendition of Chicago. Chicago. And it's really close by. Yeah, well, that makes sense since it's Cicero. Yeah. That's the street name. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Tangent. All right. Anyways, the aircraft was in a wings level but nose high attitude on impact. Eyewitnesses had stated that they noticed the airplane was nose high with high engine power at the time. The entire passenger cabin was consumed by a post-crash fire. The landing gear was in transition to being retracted on impact. Both engines were separated from the aircraft on impact. No eyewitnesses reported seeing fire before impact. The airplane struck and destroyed five houses and one garage, damaged three other houses and two other garages. Two other people nearby were minorly injured. The aircraft immediately became engulfed in flames upon impact, which led to many of the occupants receiving cyanide poisoning from smoke smoke inhalation. Turns out... That's what happens when you inhale smoke. During carbon monoxide poisoning, your blood develops cyanide in it. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay... And that's how the captain died. And that was a contributing factor, actually, in many of the deaths associated with the crash, rather than the impact, although some people did die from impact. So the death toll totals, there were a total of three crew, 40 passengers, and two others on the ground that passed away. However, that said, one crew had minor injuries, 15 passengers had minor injuries, and two other people on the ground, like I said, had minor injuries, and two crew had no injuries at all. How? Uh, we have no idea. We don't know. It we was two know. very lucky flight attendants. Yes. I believe they were at the rear. Uh, well, I mean, the rear probably didn't impact first, so... Yes. Which, by the way, evacuation from the rear was very difficult, because basically the entire galley fell apart, which apparently was known to happen on the 737 at the time. Even in, they said, in minor to moderate turbulence, it was a known issue on the 737 that some of the ovens would break loose, some of the liquor containers would break loose, and some other parts of the galley would just fall in the the way. So actually, that made evacuation very difficult because they all just fell into the doorways. 
What the heck? Wait. <laughs> Needless to say, that was something that was corrected on the 737 later. <laughs> I would hope so. That's incredibly dangerous. But for that matter, there were not many prior incidents to the for the 737. This was the first fatal accident for the 737. This was the first fatal accident of the 737. There were 61 on board, and of those, 18 survived. Yeah, okay, but like you said that in other flights, ovens fell out. Yep. And stuff. So That was just during turbulence. Yeah, and at that point I'd be like Boeing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this Listen, isn't real safe. <laughs> I know like there hasn't been a fatal accident yet, but like It was probably you might something might want to fix it so people can get out. It was probably something they were working on, to be honest, at the time already, but yep. hadn't had a high priority on it until this happened. Yeah. <laughs> so within those passengers though, one of the passengers that passed away was linked to the Watergate case, which was happening at the time. Whoa. And it was initially believed that the crash may have been a sabotage attempt to cover up some information. To add to that, there was rumored that there was a briefcase full of money uh, believed to be directly related to the Watergate case that was found from the airplane uh, wreckage. Yeah. Okay, then. On another note, the captain's autopsy revealed that there may have been symptoms related to a heart attack. What they called a myocardial infarction. Yep. Oh, man. When I read that portion, there were so many big words. (laughs) It was so beyond me. I was like, wow, this is way out there for me, like Mm -hmm. reading that section. And that doesn't happen very often, but that happened. And uh, yeah, basically all of that to say that he may have potentially had a heart attack at some point in time. But because of the cyanide in his system, there was actually no way to be able to tell. Right. So they can't prove whether or not he did. They can't prove if that had anything to do with the accident. They can't prove anything about that. So they basically had to rule it out as a possibility because they just didn't know. Okay, then. Yeah, but there's another person in the cockpit if that would have happened. I don't know. We'll get into that, too. Yeah, great. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. All right. Both black boxes were recovered from the wreckage. However, this is my first however. (laughs) (laughs) The flight data recorder, or FDR, had a malfunction. Of course. It stopped reading altitude, indicated airspeed, magnetic heading, and vertical acceleration about 15 minutes before the accident. What? Yep. (laughs) Of course. Wait, what? Investigators found that a particular gear had slipped on its shaft and stopped recording those functions. That sucks. Of freaking course it did. (laughs) Of course it did. So investigators had to use the cockpit voice recorder, or CVR, 
which only had fire damage to what the tape had recorded earlier in the flight. So what was damaged wasn't relevant. And they used it um, to record sounds like flap settings when they heard like a lever get moved. Oh, this happened, you know. Both Central Air Data Computers, or CADCs, were recovered and found to be capable of working normally, but both of their altitude functions showed an altitude higher than where they crashed, 157 feet higher on the captain's side and 107 on the first officer's. So they thought they were higher than they actually were? No. No, actually. No! Wait, that's just what what was recorded. These units are connected to the pedostatic systems for airspeed indications. As we discussed in TWA-260, if there was an error in altitude, there also would have been an error in airspeed. In this case, if the altitude was 100 feet too high, the airspeed would have been 10 knots too high. There are a couple of reasons this could have happened. The more obvious reason was ice. If that accumulates on the pedotubes, it will transmit wrong data, which is why they have built-in heaters, which were on and working based on the switches that were found in the on position and the filaments in the probe head indicating lights. So the other source would have been a nose-high attitude, which was known to happen at impact. According to Boeing, quote, Pitch angles within the stall buffeting region can produce static system error that result in altimeter reading 60 feet higher than the actual altitude, end quote. Also, if the power was cut to the CADC at impact, like it was, This would have produced a 20-foot discrepancy or more. The board concluded that these discrepancies were present at impact, but did not account for what happened at the minimum descent altitude, or MDA. Okay, so it had nothing to do with them crashing and everything to do with the fact that they were stalling and then they hit the ground. The altitude indications wouldn't have been flawed until they were already stalling. Okay. So let's go back a bit more before that fated moment. Everything about the flight was routine until the beginning of descent. First off, they didn't officially have an approach clearance through proper ATC procedures, but it was evident from recordings that it was understood between the controller and the crew that they were cleared for approach. Okay. Usually there still has to be some kind of like verbal cleared for this type of approach. Yeah. There wasn't, but it was the 70s. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got. When the flight was 15 miles out at 4,000 feet and 230 knots, the approach controller requested that they slow to 180 knots, and 80 seconds later asked to slow further to 160 knots. At that point, the CVR heard what sounded like the flap lever moving to 15 degrees. The engine power remained at 63% during this time. After ATC asked for them to slow down the first time to 180 knots, they were still higher than that 106 seconds after the request. So that was a long time to be at a speed higher than that. Yep. That's why they were gaining distance in the Aero Commander. Mm-hmm. The plane was capable of slowing down faster, assuming that thrust and spoilers were configured appropriately. So it wasn't like they couldn't slow down faster. Oh, no, definitely. They could have. Because the crew didn't slow down fast enough, they compromised ATC's ability to maintain a safe distance between them and the plane in front of them. Because of this, ATC had to issue a missed approach clearance to UA-553. At the beginning of this investigation, there was a question of if ATC may have caused the crash by giving the missed approach clearance too late, or something similar to that. But the CVR recorded the stick shaker going off during the first word of that missed approach clearance, and therefore did not have any bearing on the events at MDA, and therefore was not at fault for this incident. Yep. So the stick shaker went off when they were getting the the clearance to do a go-around. That's why I said they were already having problems up to that point. Oh, okay. So something messed up before then. 
Yeah. So were they just trying to slow down too fast, and it, it ended up they ended up going too slow? So to emphasize further some of the crew's actions, let's talk about their altitude for a second. At 2:23 p.m. and 20 seconds, the controller cleared the flight to descend from 4,000 feet to 2,000 feet. They finally did so 55 seconds, almost a full minute later, using about a 750 foot per minute descent rate. Investigators estimate their speed at this time to be about 155 knots. Investigators assume that the reason for their slow response to everything was that they were unaware of how close they were to the outer marker. This is a pretty safe assumption because there was no distance measuring equipment associated with this approach, and the crew didn't ask ATC how close they were to any of the markers either. So how did they know where they were going? I have no idea. I'd have to look into it, but I don't really want to give away too much, but one of the findings was that they did not use one of the available tools to them to figure it out. Okay. Additionally, most of the conversation from when they leveled off at 4,000 feet until they passed an intersection they could have used to judge distance to the outer marker was based around the fact that the FDR wasn't working and how they could troubleshoot it. So they knew it wasn't working and they were working on it. Or trying to. But that's all they were talking about and weren't paying attention. And I did look this up. Sterile cockpit was not in place at this point. Okay, but... Get the airplane on the ground first and have maintenance figure out how to fix is the FDR. The, is it not the most ironic thing that they would be trying to troubleshoot the FDR? <laughs> and then, and then it was And then it was needed? <laughs> I just think you don't need to spend that much time. It's probably one of those things when you're landing where you're like, it's not working. Okay, well, we can figure that out later. I don't know why you'd want to try to fix it on your descent. approach. They continue to slowly increase their descent. As they left 3,000 feet of altitude, they were at a configuration of 15 degrees flaps, around 59% engine speed, and a descent rate somewhere around 1,200 feet per minute. They lowered the landing gear and extended flaps further, assumedly around 30 degrees, when ATC said they were second on approach, as in they were behind another plane. This extension of flaps leveled them off since it increased the surface area of the wing, as we've kind of discussed in the past. They were at 2,200 feet at this point. With this altitude, the crew ultimately passed the outer marker 700 feet too high, which you should only be about 100 feet away in altitude away from that minimum crossing so, altitude. Yeah, anytime you're doing airline transport flights and you're under what is called 121 rules in FAA regulations, then you're supposed to deviate no more than 100 feet in altitude from any given point. So if you're given an altitude or if there's a point on a reference chart, you should be no more than 100 feet deviated from that. And they were 700 feet deviated. The captain eventually figured out how close they were, at which point was 3.3 miles away from the airport, and increased the rate of descent to 1,500 feet per minute. Ouch. He also called then for the final descent checklist, which was supposed to be completed before passing the outer marker. The crew kept this descent rate until they were between 1,000 and 1,100 feet, and it was a descent rate which, for the record, was steeper than United's operation manual recommended. Oh, and by the way, MDA was 1,040 feet, so they were basically at MDA at that point. Mm -hmm. This abrupt level off at MDA is also when the checklist was completed. Because they were completing the checklist, the first officer was not making his altitude callouts or monitoring speed and rate of descent. The speed at this point was based on ATC's radar data and was shown to be 120 knots. Which is slow. <laughs> it's it's very slow. That should be about touchdown speed. Well, and they thought it was kind of weird. They ran some simulations, and it would be really hard to level off 
after that steep rate of descent and be going that slow. Yep, it is very difficult. They ran many simulations and determined that the probable configuration to achieve this level off at a slow speed was 30 degrees flaps, landing gear down, and spoilers extended to the flight detent position or its maximum in-flight deployment. All evidence they had, radar, CVR, etc., showed that the captain did not increase engine power in anticipation of this level off, but rather did so 6-7 to seven seconds after trying to level off, in which case he increased engine 1 to 72% and engine 2 to 79.2%. So it was asymmetric. This setting was indicative of how abruptly he set the throttles because it was asymmetric. And it probably wasn't intentional. No. The setting was close to what was required to maintain his reference speed in the normal landing configuration with spoilers stowed, which they weren't stowed. And that was the whole source of this. He forgot that his spoilers were out still. So they were still going too slow. So they were creating drag. While they were trying to speed up. Yep. Yep. And it just constantly wanted to slow them down. After this increase in power, the stick shaker sounded and continued for the remaining 20 seconds until impact. For 8 to 10 seconds of this, they were flying level. The stick shaker would have indicated an angle of attack of 9% above the stall value, or 13 degrees. If the spoilers were stowed, this speed would have been 105 knots. If they were deployed, which they were, it would have been 116 knots. It didn't matter whether or not the spoilers were deployed at this point or not, because the reference landing speed was 125 knots. So they were going too slow, even just to land. Mm-hmm. With the flaps, spoilers, landing gear, and low engine speed, they had too much drag coming in to level off. The investigators calculated that 14,500 pounds of thrust was needed to maintain flight level without stalling, and this increased asymmetric engine setting was only 13,900 pounds, or 600 pounds of thrust short. This next part is verbatim because it is wonderfully worded, and I can't think of a way to reword it. The specified recovery procedure for an approach to a stall is to lower the nose, apply takeoff thrust, and retract the flaps to 15 degrees and the landing gear when a positive rate of climb is achieved. The performance and simulator studies indicate that the Boeing 737 had sufficient thrust capability to accelerate out of the approach to stall regime, even with the spoilers extended. If takeoff thrust is produced within 2 or 3 seconds of stick shaker activation, little or no altitude has to be sacrificed. However, the captain wigged out. He did retract the flaps to 15 degrees, but this caused a loss of lift. So he pulled up the nose. No! As happened in Colgan Air 3407. No! You see how this was just a culmination of a bunch of previous no! flights? <laughs> so I think there's a... I think what comes with this is a very psychological thing, because it is... And I, I Don't get me wrong. I'm not in the cockpit, so I don't know. But here's what I know from my, my little bit of flying experience and a lot of flight simulator time. And what I just know about jets, too. So the thing is about those jets and any airplane in reality is there's a delay in reaction to what you do. And you have to feel that delay. And more than anything, I think when the pilots feel that stick shaker, first of all, okay, now their adrenaline's probably rushing. Second of all, they look outside and they realize they're very low to the ground. And when you're that low to the ground, something just kicks in that's just... it. it it feels so counterintuitive to want to level off the nose because you know that the delay in reaction is going to make the airplane descend first before it picks up speed to go up, which I understand wigs a lot of pilots out, but it's actually way more efficient. Yep, <laughs> you are more you likely to recover. Speed. Yeah. And I think too many pilots in history have reacted poorly. They, they know what to do, 
I think. Like, in this case, the, the captain probably knew that he needed to put the nose down. But he was but too psychologically, afraid. Psychologically, he psychologically, wanted to put it, pull it up because yeah, he was so close to Because he was ground. so close to the ground. He was psychologically, he was too worried that by putting the nose down, he would just descend them into a house. And they did that anyways. So he pulled the nose up, and he also wanted more lift. So he extended the flaps, not just to 15 degrees, but to 40 degrees. Uh-oh. Again, this was probably a knee-jerk reaction. And at this point, at this speed, with the spoilers deployed... That does the opposite, actually. It doesn't create lift, it creates drag. Yeah, especially with a nose-high attitude, now you're creating drag like nobody's business. And it becomes a paperweight. He eventually did apply the sky. He eventually did apply takeoff thrust for the record, but by then the angle of attack was so high that recovery was impossible. Investigators did not find any evidence that the crew realized the spoilers were still deployed. Yep. Never at any point did they discuss it. Yep. They did, however, attempt to retract the landing gear. Yeah, because it says it was in transition when the mm-hmm. plane hit the And ground. they found the lever in the up position. Now, to address something that may have been on some of our listeners' minds, investigators did initially think that icing had something to do with this, but they determined that icing was not a causal factor because all engine anti-icing mechanisms were in place and working, and the engines were going fast enough that they were not icing. Wing anti-ice valves, turns out, were not on, but this followed United's procedure to not land with a hot wing, and simulations proved that this wouldn't be a causal factor to the stall. No, it didn't have to do with ice. It had to do with how slow they were going. Yeah, they found that icing was pretty minimal that night anyways. I think they said something, I I should have written it down, but the icing would have caused 1,000 pounds of drag, but the spoilers would have caused 3,500 pounds. Right. Or something like that, so... Significantly more. So it was even worse if it than, was if icing. It, than if it was icing. But yep. it didn't matter one way or the other. Yep. All right. So how, how many previous flights did I bring up? Colgan Air? TWA. Southern? Southern. I feel like I brought up another one. Oh, well. I don't know. Throwback. But we're about to bring up another one. And that's okay. Okay. <laughs> can, I, can I ask why the first officer didn't do anything? So that's just it. So they found that the pilot, or the captain, the pilot flying, just wasn't managing the cockpit well. And it wasn't that he was being angry or anything. He just wasn't managing his time. He wasn't giving the first officer things to do. He wasn't asking the first officer for help at any point in time. Well, It wasn't the- really even like a, a, a miscommunication. It was more of a lack of communication. For one. And then when he did give the first officer things to do, it was... At the wrong time. Too, yeah, too It was way late. too late. He shouldn't have been doing his final approach checklist. He should have been doing call-outs and monitoring, but he didn't have time amidst the checklist. Do you want to know my theory? What? Go for it. I think he did have a heart attack. That wouldn't surprise me. Because he, well, here's because everything, he was slow. Here, here's everything that gives that away. He was really slow to respond to air traffic control calls. They were saying sometimes 30, 40 seconds before he would acknowledge when they were calling him for different descents and different speed changes. It would take him exorbitant amounts of time compared to normal to respond to those. And then he seemed to be having difficulties with understanding radio calls, interpreting what the airplane is doing. He, he seemed to be slow on reaction times to a lot of things. And that has been known to happen when pilots have a heart attack. Interesting. I really do think he might have had a heart attack. and it, I, I think that's the only reason they specifically brought that up. Probably. And the problem is, is they could just never prove it. And even today, I don't think they could. 
Apparently there's no sign of heart attack if you die of smoke inhalation. Yep. And it's just too bad. And I mean, I, I feel bad. I mean, if that is what happened, it's not on him and I feel really bad. It's it That does suck. Well, even, <laughs> even so, if he was, I mean, I don't know how experienced the co-pilot was, mm-hmm. first officer, with flying with that captain and all that stuff. Like, right. there's a bunch of factors that right. goes into that. But even so... If he knew he was being a little late on some stuff, like, he should have known when to do the checklist and been like, why haven't we done this yet? But also, to counter that, this was before Tenerife. There Captain's word was still law. Oh, okay. Captain's word was still law for one, and two, they were so focused on the FDR problem at the time, that's all they were thinking about. And so the first officer wasn't really paying attention either. And you can't blame, really, I mean one or the other it kind of it's just crew resource management in general yeah crew crew resource management again again which will come up in recommendations later didn't happen so in the findings they found and i actually really liked this report this one was probably one of the easiest ones i've ever read in my entire life i spent a lot of time trying to reword things in the analysis section that i felt like i I could have just read the analysis section to you. I had to it re- was so easy to understand. Yeah, I had to reword very little in the findings and in the recommendations. I really didn't have to reword much either, but the re- the recommendation section was more of a letter than it was actual just bullet point recommendations like they do now. That's okay. So for findings, they found that all parts of the airplane were airworthy and working apart from the FDR. Cough. Yeah. They found that there was no evidence found of sabotage or foul play in the accident. So Take they, that, conspiracy theorist. Yeah, they ruled out the Watergate thing. Now, that doesn't mean that there wasn't somebody on the plane that was involved with Watergate. That just means that that wasn't the reason it crashed. It wasn't an intentional crash. Right. It was an accident. Right. They found that the anti-ice for the engines was on, working, and used properly. They found that the aircraft had not encountered icing conditions too great for flight, and the aircraft would have been capable of leveling off and going around. They found that air traffic control's timing was adequate for the safety of the flight in calling a missed missed approach and a go-around, in other words. They found that the flight crew was slow at responding to air traffic control requests for speed and altitude changes. They found that the crew did not use one of the available means to determine distance to the outer marker. So they're saying that whole outer marker thing, they're saying there was some mean they had in order of calculating it basically so there was a reference point that they could have used Mm -hmm. but they were too focused on the fdr that's fair but that was pretty much the only way they would know they were near the outer marker yep are there any recommendations about that no is there an ils now i believe so okay that airport's changed a lot since then they found that the aircraft crossed the outer marker at 700 feet above the published minimum crossing altitude They found that the captain did not call for the final descent checklist until after they had passed the outer marker, leaving only 3.3 miles to do the checklist and fly the approach simultaneously. It's only 3.3 miles to touch down. That is no time. That was maybe a minute and a half worth of time they had. I think that's actually exactly what they said was a minute and a half. Yeah, they had about a minute and a half worth of time to do all that, and that's not enough. They found that there was a breakdown in crew coordination at the most critical stage of flight. Needless to say, that one's basically saying there was a lack of crew resource management, but it didn't exist yet. Nope, the term was not coined at that point. Right. They found that the first officer did not make the prescribed altitude callouts during the approach. He was distracted. 
He was reading the checklist instead of doing his altitude callouts. And they found that the spoilers, or the speed brakes, were deployed to the flight detent position for the final descent from the outer marker and remained in that position during the level off at MDA. And that's it for findings. There were only four recommendations, by the way, four bullet point, and almost all of them were about the same thing. Um, they had a whole letter at the end of the report about emphasizing basically this first point. It says, re-emphasizing to all flight crew members the importance of total crew coordination and adherence to approved procedures. Crew resource management. Yep. It still wasn't coined at the time, but they were talking about it mostly in a sense that on non-precision approaches, it seemed to be a problem at the time. Now, two years before this was Southern Airways, which was on a non-precision approach, had poor crew coordination, and impacted a hill. So they were saying that this basically was a problem in commercial aviation doing non-precision approaches, that there seemed to be a lack of coordination with pilots very common in the industry at the time, and that this was obviously causing a lot of accidents, and... They wrote a whole letter that they distributed to so many different unions and airline administrations and the FAA and so on and so forth, just stating that there needs to be a lot more coordination between the crew. So this was still seven years before cruise management would actually be coined and used as an actual checkable and trainable But the concept term. of it of it being implemented began with an NTSB recommendation made during the investigation of the 1978 United Airlines Flight 173 crash. We'll cover that one sometime. Uh, we've already talked about how we're going to cover it because it's one of the DC-8s that crashed yeah. in Portland. Yes. So we will cover that one sometime. That was the one I was going to do. But this one was definitely one of the many involved in making this real. However, theirs was really, this one was really more centered around the non-precision approach thing, because then the next one, the next bullet point I have says they recommended emphasizing the, to flight crews that non-precision approaches require more crew coordination than precision approaches. Because you're actually having you're relying to visually, on people. yeah, you're relying on people, you're having to visually check everything and use reference points, and you're having to do so many things that it actually requires a lot more work than a precision approach. To continue my Wikipedia research, the first airline to implement CRM training was United Airlines Duh. in 1981. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. That, that only makes sense. It became a global standard in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So the last two recommendations didn't have as much to do with that, but are pretty similar. They recommended reviewing flight manuals and training procedures to further familiarize flight crews with the effects of spoilers on aircraft characteristics and stall warning devices. And the last one, they recommended issuing an advisory bulletin to alert pilots to the improper use of spoilers. That's literally all they had for recommendations. But all of that got implemented. Yes. And that's the good thing, is there were definitely things that very much came out of this, and they, they definitely made some very valid recommendations as well. I mean, those were the important things, because... Because they could say all these different recommendations to fix so many other problems when really it breaks down to crew resource management was a heavy one that caused so many other problems. Basically a lack of focus on so many different things. They weren't focusing on altitude. They weren't focusing on the spoilers that were still up. They weren't focusing on, you know, doing checklists, so many things. And that was all just purely because there was a breakdown in communication. So, and I loved the fact that, uh, so I brought up the, the uh, evacuation thing earlier, the, the galley. Yeah falling apart and literally that is the last page of the report it says this this was a letter that they sent to the faa 
and to Boeing, and so on and so forth. It was in one of the appendices, and it says, The emergency evacuation problems. A recurring problem of galley security was encountered in the UAL Boeing 737 accident when, during impact, food and service items fell from the two aft cabin galley units. The impact, which was described by cabin attendants as a series of mild to moderate jolts acting forward and rearward, caused the four oven units and food carriers, the cold food trays, and the liquor supply units to be thrown to the floor near the rear service door. The board previously has commented on the evacuation hazard caused by loose galley equipment and acknowledges a letter from the FAA dated February 16, 1973, which cites corrective actions to alleviate the galley security problem. And then it goes on from there. But basically, all of that to say they had mentioned it and the FAA was working on it. And this report was in July. However, in February of the same year, the report, so this was after the accident, before the report was released, the FAA issued corrective action to fix that. I mean, that's important because you want people to be able to get out if they can get out. Well, yeah, because they do believe that more people died from smoke inhalation than the impact. Because they couldn't get out. They couldn't get out. So right now, if you board a plane and you look in the galley area, there's a bunch of red flip tabs everywhere to stop stuff. Was that not in place? They were, um, but they were a little different and they probably weren't as secure. Okay. And also this relies on the things that have the red tabs staying attached to the wall. Yeah, those come out, <laughs> everything's coming out. Yeah. All right. I'm sure there's an actual technical term for those, but they're red tab flippy things. Red tab, red tab flippy things? That's exactly what they are. That's exactly what they are, though. Sorry. Yeah, that's no. Exactly that's exactly what they are. Sure, yeah. If there's a flight attendant who actually knows what they're called, please tell us. Otherwise, we're going to keep calling them red tab flippy things. I'm sure I could look it up. Yeah, but what's the fun in that? I don't know. I get to have the term if you guys have your stupid word. Hey, anti-deuncomplification is not a stupid word. <laughs> and I didn't dare have you. to use it this time anyways, because I didn't have to anti-deuncomplicate anything. This was a good report. This yeah. was a good report. 10 and, out of 10 would recommend. And uh, <laughs> I think this was... yeah. <laughs> and I think this was a, a valid crash to cover. I think this was definitely interesting. Be it that this was the first... Fatal. Fatal accident of the 737. It was... Definitely important, and needless to say, Midway, this was not the last time something happened there. No. Nor was it the last time that a 737 killed somebody on the ground. <laughs> we will cover the other Midway crash sometime. We have it scheduled. But there I are don't. several, but that It'll one, come we'll, out cover in a the, few weeks. we'll cover the one that most people today probably remember. The Southwest uh-huh. one? Yeah. Uh-huh. It's in our schedule, but I don't have our schedule pulled up. Also, we're going to do a mechanical failure, since we've done a lot of pilot error lately yeah like a lot my miranda sode was a pilot error and it had to do with mda i was like <laughs> we've gosh. had a lot of episodes this has about happened MDA. a lot a lot of mda <laughs> and a lot of pilot error and a lot of lack of crew research so well, we're gonna switch it up we are and we promise we are not trying to be boring or anything we are we are hoping to make the best out of all of these and we really actually appreciate the recommendations we super appreciate it like a lot also we will answer you if you Email us or message us on Facebook or on anything. 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 Yeah, yeah we generally do. Part. So, but we, we do appreciate it and uh, we hope you're listening, quarantined at home, being safe and healthy and just enjoying this because you can. If you need more content because you're getting bored, we got a Patreon By page. the way, there are, after this episode, there will be like 45 extra content things you can listen to up there. Yeah, like our post episodes, which... 
are a lot of fun. Uh, most of them. Last week's was a little meh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was my Miranda sodes that was a little meh. We talked a lot about the coronavirus, and I don't want to talk about it anymore, so we're not going to in this one, because I'm tired of talking about it, but... I do have to make one note, though, about that, and that is to all of our friends in the aviation industry. I do hope you are doing well, because I know that this has hit the aviation industry harder than almost any other industry on Earth, and I do feel for that, because it is not anybody's fault, and... We do plan on flying in the future... So we I just hope, can't right now. I hope that all our listeners do too, because all those people need to go back to work. Yes. And this has affected a lot of people's lives that aren't talking about it. I know because it just doesn't seem worth it because it's affected a lot of people's lives in every industry. But that said, the airline industry is probably going to be the hardest hit in the long term. And people don't see that yet. And I think... And the airline industry is one of the world's biggest employers. It is. And I feel completely for everybody who's sitting at home right now wondering how their job's going to keep going forward or their career in aviation. And I uh, I really hope that you people can keep working and keep keep doing things. I know you can eventually. I know the industry will recover, but... It, for fuels, the... it fuels our passion. Yes. And I feel for now that... Uh, we are part of that community. I know I work in the industry, but doing this, it's still, it's part of it. We have a lot of listeners that are definitely involved in the industry, and we, we just want things to not feel totally crazy for you and to keep that passion alive, basically. Yes, so we hope that this blows over pretty soon so that everyone everyone can get back to work. Yes, everybody it's... in every industry. I mean, I have two brothers. One of them I, is driving me nuts because he's at home instead of being at work. And he keeps bothering me because he's at home and not at work. <laughs> he's like, I want to go back to work. I'm like, I want you to go back to work too. Yep. So, <laughs> yeah, we're we're just, uh, we hope everyone's staying safe, stay healthy. If you are sick, remember, stay home. Don't go out, although there's nowhere to go, so <laughs> yeah. there's ways to get stuff if you're sick and you can't go out, have people, healthy people bring you stuff, you know, or there's always um, agencies that are uh, doing delivery and things like that, so please take advantage of some of those things, at least in the United States, I'm, I don't know, around the, our listeners who are not in the United States, I'm not sure how everyone is handling it out there because i'm sure there's some of that but not in some of the countries we have listening so hopefully you have a way to get around safely and are healthy and hopefully you have toilet paper well (laughs) the united states are the dumb ones that don't have toilet paper no it's happening in a lot of places but yeah the united states in particular it is pretty bad stop stealing the toilet paper on another note Thank you to the new listeners in countries we didn't have before. Yeah, we got like four. Belgium. 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 Oh, the Maldives. Yes. Oh, yeah. Thank you to our Guamanian listener. I have family there. You probably know them. I don't know how you'll figure out who they are, though. (laughs) Good luck with that. We've had a few countries over the past couple weeks. I can't remember any Show up on the radar. Mexico's one of them. Oh, yeah. Hello, Mexico. Mexico. Thanks for listening. Antigua and Barbuda. Yes. Barbuda. Barbuda. Don't ask me about Caribbean islands. I don't know how anything's pronounced. But we have a listener there, so hello! Okay, we're going to take off to our post-episode now. Join us on Patreon. And we won't talk about the coronavirus there. We'll just talk about other stuff. Yeah, because we're tired about talking about the coronavirus. So, stay healthy, stay happy. We hope you have a good week, and we will... Talk to you later. Yep. Keep Keep your speed up. up! 
Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.